1: This morning, 7,000
0: nurses at two New York City hospitals walking off the job for a second day over wages, working conditions, and what they call a crisis of understaffing. What's the sticking point?
1: The sticking point is staffing. It's really hurtful for us to see what's happening to the patients.
0: The two major hospitals now moving vulnerable patients like NICU babies and bringing in travel nurses. COVID has made previous nursing shortages even worse. The union wants improved staffing standards with more nurses hired and fewer patients assigned per nurse. Bianca Russo says her neonatal ICU is overextended. Sometimes we get up to three, four babies for one nurse, and they're not well babies. They're sick babies, and having one nurse to four babies is absolutely unacceptable, and we cannot do it anymore.
1: Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. I don't know about you, but to me and a lot of other people around the country, it seems like the healthcare system here in the United States is FUBAR. And for those that don't know what FUBAR stands for, it stands for F***ed Up Beyond All Recognition. To a lot of us, healthcare is too expensive and is suffering from a lot of different ailments. And for a lot of people, including patients, A lot of us just don't know why, but if you talk to those in the profession, they can tell you, and there are a host of different reasons and causes. So before I get started and bring my guest on today, because the topic of healthcare is pretty important to all of us, I'm going to let you know that this is going to be a bit longer of an episode than usual. So the clip you just heard a moment ago is from ABC News covering a strike that took place last week in New York City. And if you're a subscriber to laborunionnews.com's News Digest, you probably saw the articles we posted before, during, and after the strike was settled. However, if you didn't see any of the articles and you don't really know what I'm talking about, let me give you a really quick summary. In New York City, where the vast majority of nurses in the city are unionized, mostly by the New York State Nurses Association, or NISNA, around 7,000 nurses went out on strike at two hospitals. And the hospitals were Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx and Mount Sinai Medical Center on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And they were out on strike for three days over the issues of staffing and pay. Now, to make a long story short, NYSNA ended the strike after three days and claimed to win. Quote, This is a historic victory for New York City nurses and for nurses across the country, NYSNA President Nancy Hagen said in a January 12th news release. NYSNA nurses have done the impossible, saving lives night and day throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, and now we've again shown that nothing is impossible for nurse heroes. End quote. Now, This is where it gets a little bit confusing and kind of leads me to wonder, was it really a win? So according to CNN, after the strike, the union said the deal, quote, will provide enforceable safe staffing ratios for all inpatient units at Mount Sinai and Montefiore so that there will always be enough nurses at the bedside to provide safe patient care, not just on paper. At Montefiore... The hospital agreed to financial penalties for failing to comply with agreed-upon staffing levels in all units. Montefiore said the agreement also includes 170 new nursing positions, a 19 percent increase over the three-year life of the contract, lifetime health coverage for eligible retirees, and adding significantly more nurses in the ER. However, there's this little tidbit from NPR that gets it that gets this whole thing a little bit more murky. This was while the strike was going on. There are hundreds of unfilled nursing positions at the two striking hospitals. Many nurses stretched by stretched thin by the COVID-19 pandemic have left their jobs for more lucrative travel nursing roles or quit the profession altogether. End quote. Then in a lengthier piece entitled New York nurses oppose sellout deal after union shuts down strike against dangerous understaffing, the World Socialist website, or WSWS, explains a bit further. Quote, while NISNA has claimed that 170 staff positions are being added at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, this is less than a quarter of the 700 needed. Similarly, Mount Sinai's Contract highlights say nothing about filling the 500 empty staff positions at the Manhattan Hospital, end quote. So unless I'm missing something, NYSDA's strike victory got nurses a 19% increase over three years, which amounts to about a 6.3% increase if it's divided by the three years, which is about 2% less than the inflation rate last year. Then to add to it, the union got the hospitals to agree to add hundreds of more positions to the already hundreds of positions they can't fill right now. Now, it doesn't take a genius to know that something doesn't make sense about that. So you and I know that New York's uh, strike, the New York City strike, is just one example of a lot of strikes that happened last year around the country and are still going on from New York to California to Hawaii. Last year, according to the Washington Post, nurses led a quarter of the top 20 major work stoppages that were tracked by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And what we're seeing today in healthcare has been going on to some degree for as long as I've worked in healthcare, which is going on three decades. But only now, since the pandemic, it seems to have gotten a lot worse. And what's worse is that the nursing shortage that's been going on for years shows no sign of easing. In fact, it may have gotten actually a bit worse. According to NPR, the Bureau of Labor Statistics projected, and I'm using past tense there, that the U.S. needs more than 275,000 additional nurses from from 2020 to 2030. Now, we're at 2023, so I would suspect that that $275,000, we are not going anywhere towards that number, but actually going away from that number. So we probably need more than that now. Now, I know there's a lot of people, and many of them in and around the union movement, that blame, quote, corporate greed and say that the U.S. needs to go to single-payer health care, a.k.a. nationalized health care, a.k.a. socialized medicine. But let's pause on that for a second, because I'm not really sure the solution is having the government take over the healthcare industry. And let me explain why, or at least if the government takes it over, I'm not sure it'll solve these problems. One of the benefits of running a news website like laborunionnews.com is that while we mostly post articles related to the unions in the United States, we see union-related articles from all over the world. And right now, this week, in the United Kingdom, or England for us commoners, which has single-payer healthcare, by the way, government-run, nurses are striking for the same reasons nurses are striking here in the U.S., staffing and pay. Give a listen. Thousands of British nurses will go on strike in December, according to the union, on Friday. An unprecedented move in the union's century-long history, coming on the cusp of what looks to be a tough winter for Britain's National Health Service. The nurses say it's the first of several possible walkouts in a dispute over pay and unsafe staffing levels as the UK sinks deeper into its cost-of-living crisis. So that clip was from November, talking about strikes that were to occur in December, which they did, and are currently happening in England today, and are planned for February if the nurses across England can't get their staffing and pay issues addressed. So just as we have staffing and pay issues here, so too do nations like England, which already have government-run health care. And England has had government-run health care since 1948. And they've got the same problems. So the issue is bigger than just here in the United States, but because we're talking about healthcare in the United States, I wanted to bring somebody on who's been on the front lines, both before and throughout the pandemic. Melissa is a nurse and has worked at hospitals as a staff nurse, as well as a travel nurse. And she brings a somewhat unique perspective, given that she's seen both the good and the bad at several hospitals around the country. Now, I asked Melissa to share her perspectives without naming names of systems or particular hospitals, but to just give her perspective. And I'm also not providing Melissa's last name because I don't want her to see any blowback or retaliation for expressing her opinions. You see, it's my hope that people in positions can listen to this who can affect change or make a difference in today's healthcare system. And they can start coming up with ideas on how to write this ship. I've got a few and I'll share with, share them with you after this episode or after Melissa. And if you're in healthcare, I'd like to hear from you as well. Do me a favor, listen to this, leave a comment under the audio portion and share your thoughts. Cause this is not just a nationwide problem. It's also a worldwide problem. Too few people doing too much work, and the problem seems to be getting worse And May in the future as our demographics shift. In any case, here's Melissa.
0: You are listening to Labor Relations Radio.
1: Well, Melissa, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today?
0: I'm very good. Thank you for having me. How are you?
1: I'm great. Um, so we might hear a little bit of audio. You said your kids are in the background, and yes. we should probably tell the listeners um you and I are somehow related. I can't quite figure out if it's second cousins or whatever, but the last time I think I saw you prior to a few months ago was, or maybe it was last year, I guess, um, was when you were a baby.
0: Oh, yes. Yes, this is true. I was just thinking, I thought this question might come up, and I think we decided that we are, like, first cousins once. I don't know. You're my mom's cousin. (laughs) Right. <laughs> if anyone yeah. asked, that's how I would describe you.
1: Well, and, and for most of your life, I've been on the East Coast and you're out in the West Coast. So the other thing um, I thought it'd be helpful to mention that both you and your mom are RNs. Yes. And both, nurses. both with hospital experience, although I think yours is a little bit more recent, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That is so, true. So what got you into nursing?
0: Um, I never thought I wanted to do anything different. This is silly, but I watched Steel Magnolias, which is still my very favorite movie when I was little, little, cause I don't know when it came out, but I was born in 86. So I was young and, you know, Shelby and Steel Magnolias is a nurse to babies, and she says she doesn't want to give up her nursing job. And ever since then, I was like, I want to do what she does. And I don't know if it was my infatuation with Julia Roberts or what, but I'd always wanted to be a nurse. And then, of course, my mom went through nursing school um, and finally finished when I was in high school. And so she kind of paved the way as well.
1: Yeah, she worked in, in hospitals as well.
0: She and, did. Yeah. She did a little hospital nursing right after she graduated and she's kind of dipped her toes in quite a bit.
1: Right. And you're um, you're both from California, although you don't live there any longer. Yes. So your, your nursing um, background is from California, right?
0: Yes. The bulk of what I've done in nursing has been in California.
1: What kind of departments have you worked in?
0: Um, a few different. So mostly my my wide range experience would have been like acute rehabilitation. So in California, those are still considered acute care hospitals, but they're standalone. It's like the patient that has had a stroke or a heart attack, and um they're still ill enough that they need 24 hour nursing care, but they are not so ill that um they need to be in a, a large hospital. So that was the bulk of it, was in acute rehab. And then I've also done telemetry units um, with floating, obviously, to higher acuity when needed and done quite a bit of cardiac care through those tele-units. So that's kind of where I where I stood as far as my acute care experience before I decided to become a traveler, which we'll get to, I'm sure, at some point.
1: Right. <laughs> um, so in California, were you part of the CNA, California Nurses Association?
0: Um, I was not a part of that. No, I never did join that.
1: Okay. Were they in your hospital or or sister hospitals or around you?
0: Uh we honestly had never I don't I honestly don't know. It was not really ever something that was discussed as me on a floor as a floor nurse of um they always encourage you throughout school to join those associations, but I don't think it was ever much pushed once we were in a job, one way or the other.
1: Okay. Um, and the other question I had for you, uh, as it relates to California, California, if I recall, has a staffing ratio law, right? Or is it just guidance?
0: Nope. It's law. Um, very strict law. I have worked for or been around and heard rumors of many hospitals being sued for not following ratio. So it's something that every hospital I worked for took fairly seriously.
1: So, my question with that, and for people outside of California, um, why is that a big deal?
0: Ooh, um, one of the the main reason it's a big deal is patient safety. It is not safe to physically care for more than what your capacity should be. And in some other states, they use things like acuity. They make it based on acuity. So how ill are your patients? You can have so many that are really, really ill, but then you have a couple that aren't, they aren't so bad. They just need a couple meds, so they're not quite as bad. And they use that kind of formula to say you can have this many patients. In California, they base the acuity on the floor that you're working on. So if you're, for instance, in a telemetry unit where they have cardiac monitoring, it's one to four. It was appropriate for me to have up to four patients, and that is what they deemed safe. Like, if you have four patients, you should be able to handle that load and be safe with your patients throughout the day. So it's a really big deal, um, there, I think, should be throughout the country.
1: So I'm, I'm asking this, and it's a really wide-ranging topic because um, California and perhaps New York really don't have laws per se, right? They, they have guidance and the state's guide and et cetera. Mm-hmm. But what would happen in California if, for example, Somebody called off, you didn't have enough nurses to cover and stay within the one to four ratio.
0: So that only, I i was very lucky. In the hospitals that I worked for, they took ratios very seriously. So that very rarely were we presented with that, you must take an extra patient. Um, and if it happens in... A hospital frequently, nurses would quit <laughs> or they would say, you know, I'm sorry, it's my license, I won't. So very rarely did I have to see that happen. But typically what they would do is say, hey, we're going to pull the charge nurse and the charge nurse is going to take, you know, this many patients. Can you just pass meds and the charge nurse will do the assessments and be responsible otherwise? Or, you know, can we all just kind of help each other take care of this one patient together Um, you you do the morning meds, I'll do the afternoon meds, or you would see, can you please take this extra patient for just a couple of hours? We're getting somebody to come in, but they can't come in until 10 a.m. or, you know, lunchtime. And at that point, we'll reevaluate the schedule and make sure that you're back within ratio. So typically, if I did see it, if that happens where there was absolutely no one available, um, many accommodations were made to try to make sure that was not a whole shift. Um, they would look at acuity, obviously try to give you the least um, sick patients if you were going to take an extra for a day.
1: So staffing, and I bring this up and I want to come back to this, staffing for as long as I've been doing healthcare work, which is probably 25 or more years, has always been an issue in hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's interesting because you don't hear about it as much in California, although there are nursing shortages in California, Right. Oh, definitely. So what are they doing?
0: Oh, um, a few things. They make working for them very beautiful at first. Uh, they do lots of contracts for new grads coming out where they're going to give you a sign on bonus and they're going to give you, you know, they try to do, you know, make your own schedule and give you different types of benefits, lots of tuition reimbursement and benefits to get you on board. Right. So, that is part of it. You will find... They lure you in. They do. They absolutely lure you in. And you'll find that those those benefits and those incentives are higher in the um, less desirable places to live, right? So where I lived, that was a bit less desirable. Those incentives were very good because those other places like, you know, the San Diego, San Francisco, beautiful places to live... They paid really well, but they also wouldn't accept new grads. And so yeah. new grads would come to less desirable areas. They'd get some experience. They'd finish out their two-year contract. And then they, they'd they say, okay, now I have experience. I can go back and work, you know, in these other areas that pay much better. And I can live in these nicer areas to stay in. So they do that. some of it was contract work. Um, the other thing as far as ratios and staffing goes, you um, In my area, and and what I saw pre-COVID, which I know we'll get to a bit, was that it is a good wage. It's a good living wage in California to be a nurse. Um, I I definitely made a big dent in supporting my family that way, and I was able to work two days a week, really. Um, I knew that I was going to... You got lots of um, raises not based on merit, but just annual raises because the cost of living got higher every year. So you got your cost of living increases and things like that. And so it was a good wage for the type of job that I had. And that was always what I had in the back of my mind. Am I being paid adequately for what they're asking me to do? And a lot of that included the ratio. Okay, well, I know that I've only got four patients. You know, if I jump ship and go somewhere else, that could be different. So I've got four patients. I make my own schedule. I make a decent living wage. It's a good job.
1: Were you classified as a per diem or or part-time or full-time?
0: Oh, I did a little bit of both. So I was part-time for um, many, many years when my kids were the youngest, and that was two full days a week, and I still had full benefits. So I got full medical dental vision, sick time, vacation time, and I only worked 24 hours, two days a week. Interesting. And then I went per diem. When I went per diem, I lost those extra benefits, so that – you lose medical dental vision, but you get a much higher hourly wage. So it was that, you know, cost versus benefit. Is it going to be worth it for us to take this per diem where you 100% across the board get to make your own schedule? You tell them when you're available, not the other way around. And you make 10 to $15 more per hour, but you lose those other benefits that you would have had otherwise.
1: Now, again, this is, this is California, um, but you, was it three years ago, I guess, was it before or after the, the lockdown started in California that you took off? You, you started doing travel nursing through the pandemic, right?
0: Yes, and that was not the original plan. We had kind of as a family decided that we were going to travel full-time before COVID ever happened. Um, so, in summer of 2019, we decided that that was going to be our like next year's, let's, let's sell our house, let's do travel nursing for a little bit. I've got the experience. I know that we can. Um, and that's really the only way we could supplement both of our incomes, not just mine. And so that had been the plan long before COVID hit. And we left summer of 2020 to travel full time and take
1: travel assignments. So, so- so were you working when the pandemic hit in California?
0: I was, yes. I had just decided. So that January, because we knew we were coming up on that decision for us to leave, I went per diem. Uh, I was. I had always kept a side per diem job. That's the beauty of California, too. You have those side jobs that pay you so much extra. So I had a part-time job where I had all my benefits. I worked two days a week. And then I had a per diem job at another place because... If you're going to work extra, you might as well do it at the place that's not going to tax you quite as high and not get all those benefits removed. So I always had my side gig. So I went per diem at both jobs in January, um, knowing that I we figured out our benefit arrangement and things like that. So we didn't need any of that anymore, knowing that we were going to eventually leave. And so in March is when the lockdowns happened and things started changing drastically. So I was there, um, locked down and COVID-wise, from March until July is when we left to travel.
1: So when things started changing drastically, and I'm asking this because we've always had nursing shortages, and I'm trying to figure out, it just seems like now it's much worse, and the healthcare environment is just screwed up. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out what was the trigger and and like what's changed so it, when the when the lockdowns in California happened what happened as a nurse on the floor
0: so when they originally happened um, I was all set up to work you know at least three days a week I was making per diem wages so I was making a lot more we were going to try to save a bunch of money before we left and the lockdowns happens and because you're a per diem employee another part of what happens with that is that you're not guaranteed hours they aren't paying you any benefits anymore so if they don't need extra staff. You're the first one that loses hours. So they they call it calling you off or calling you down. They'll call you and say, sorry, we don't need you today. Um, thanks, but no thanks. And I did not work for six weeks. I didn't work from March until all of April, mid-May, I'd say, was the next time I took a shift. And I was on the schedule. I was on the schedule two to three days a week between my two jobs, and they didn't need me at all. So originally with the lockdowns, (laughs) that nursing staff all of a sudden was, they were in surplus.
1: (laughs) Was that because they're canceling like elective surgeries and elective procedures? Like how come they didn't need you when you had all these people sick and coming into the hospitals?
0: Great question, right? Because typically around that time, you know, we still, I worked on a cardiac telefloor floor with stroke patients, right? So where did all the... Where'd the heart attacks go and the strokes go that we were so used to getting? How did those just stop when we all of a sudden locked down? And and I don't have the answer to that. I don't know what happened to them. I do know that they tried not to. I think that it's twofold. Um, people were too afraid to go to the hospital and risk being exposed. So there were people that just were not going to the hospital when they needed to. And then... The other side of that was, yes, anything elective was being canceled because they wanted to make sure they were preserving as much of our PPE and as many hospital beds as they possibly could. And so there was a little bit of both of that. And then the rest of it is still a wonder where where were all the people that were typically getting sick? I have no idea what happened to them, but they didn't need me for six weeks. We were very low census for that entire first little chunk until the wave of COVID really hit California.
1: And were you still there when, when the wave hit?
0: I was, um, I, at that, so by that point I had put in my notice at the acute care hospital where I did the telly stuff and I was just back in the rehab, um, finishing out my last few weeks before we decided to move and, and travel full time. So I was at the rehab hospital and we got a few COVID patients, but they still, um, especially with rehab now, mind you, we've got, for whatever reason, lower strokes, lower heart attacks, um, definitely lower elective surgery. So not as many hips and knees and spines that we would have normally seen at the rehab hospital. So that had kind of died down. Um we did get some COVID, some post, some post-COVIDs that had been intubated for a long time and then came there. So they were their census picked up a bit before I left, but it wasn't like what you were seeing in the rehab hospitals were, or in, the, I'm sorry, the acute care hospitals where they were overwhelmed. It wasn't like that. Before I left,
1: um, was the town you were in overwhelmed with COVID?
0: Not that I saw while I was there. No, I I heard that they were once I left, but I had not seen that for my own two eyes. No, I had not seen any hospitals that were completely full.
1: Yeah, I was I was doing work with the healthcare system um, recently and talking to the staff there and administrators, and it was interesting because within their system. Various hospitals were hit harder than others, depending on where they were geographically. And it's, it's kind of interesting mm-hmm. just from, because they're all within miles of each other. But, right. So you left in, in June of 2020?
0: Yeah, July you, of 2020.
1: In July. So you started doing travel work. Um, and I, I remember seeing you in Virginia, but you'd done a number uh-huh. of states, right?
0: We did, yeah. We traveled through, um, I don't know, we'd probably seen like 25-ish states by then, but my first travel assignment was in Virginia um, in October. So from July to October, we just kind of enjoyed life and traveled around in our RV with our kids, and I didn't work for that couple of months, and then I took my first assignment there in Virginia.
1: And without naming the, I guess, city, um, I remember (laughs) when, when we talked then and it was only briefly but you're like wow it's very different here in terms of nursing standards
0: mm mm-hmm. yes very <laughs> is, that, is that was that
1: ratio related or was that care related
0: oh both, both. um my very first and mind you, so I took a few months off of this pandemic, right? So we were traveling and the pandemic was getting better or worse in certain areas. And I wasn't really seeing that because I wasn't in the hospital at the time. And so then I jumped back into a new hospital in a new state, um, different roles, different ratios, very different nursing um, Uh, conditions I should say. And I, I remember the manager of the unit that I was being hired for immediately basically said, I'm sorry. And I understand if this doesn't end up working out like on day one, you know, many, many of our travel nurses are not making it (laughs) to the end of their contract. And I was like, okay.
1: Is that because they're quitting?
0: Yes. They were dropping before their contract was finishing. Why is that? So for this particular unit, I was working what's called a transitional care. So basically, I was the unit was run by the emergency room, but it was five floors up from the emergency room, and you were taking patients who needed a bed, but there wasn't a bed available yet. So you took them from the ER to get them out of the ER and and give them space, but then you held on to them until they had a bed on the floor. So it was transitional care. So you could get anything up into this unit, and the way they staffed this unit, there were 10 beds, and they had hopefully two nurses there and no one else. So we had no CNAs, no monitor texts, no one to answer our phones, no one to um, do anything. It was two of us. We did total care on 10 patients. So we each had five patients, which in, you know, just looking at that, oh, well, you only had five to one. Well, it was five to one total care. And you walked onto this unit, and because they don't have laws for such things in Virginia, I didn't there were many days in my 12 weeks there where I did not leave that unit for 12 hours. I didn't get a break because no one came to break me and I couldn't leave one nurse with 10 patients by herself. And so you sat there for 12 hours on this locked unit with your patients.
1: When you say total care for the non-healthcare listeners, total care is you're talking about nursing, bathing, changing sheets or or
0: Yeah, all of it. So uh, I guess it would depend on your unit, obviously, the acuity of your patients. But so for a nurse, a typical day is going to look like um, giving medications all day, and you're going to be bathing your maybe bathing your patients. Usually you have CNAs that can help. And um, this meant, or you've got monitor techs, right? So if you have patients who are on a cardiac monitor, you've got somebody kind of watching your monitor on the side, making sure that nothing crazy is going on so they can call you and tell you, alert you if there's something wrong. Um, These patients could have been monitored. They could have been on cardiac drips. They could have had any number of issues. We had many of times where we had alcohol withdrawal patients that were climbing out of bed and there were two of us. There was no one else. And so the total care meant exactly that. If they had an accident, we changed their entire linens and their beds together. If they had to go to the bathroom, we were the ones picking them up to take them to the bathroom with their IV poles, their one bathroom that they were sharing with 10 patients, mind you, because it wasn't like, rooms. There weren't rooms, they were curtained off. So all 10 beds were kind of together in a curtained area. Um, No housekeeper was, I mean, maybe a housekeeper towards the end of the day, but if we needed our trash dumped because it was full, then we had to tie it up and go take it to the back because we needed a new trash can. Um, We changed out the beds, cleaned the beds in between. So total care, everything that they needed for that 12 hours, the two of us that were there did. Uh, And I should also mentioned we were both travelers. So there was no staff person on that unit to be able to say, Hey, this is where we get this, or, you know, this is who you call if you need this. None of that. It was just the two of us.
1: Now, is that normal for that hospital outside of the pandemic? Was that something they're used to, or is that something that was pandemic related, not enough nurses in that town?
0: Um, I think that some of that was, I would like to say that some of that was very much pandemic related. I would hope Um, I don't, I, I know that their ratios and things like that were not pandemic related, but as far as like all the extra travelers clearly and not having, not having anybody to train their travelers. Yeah. I would definitely say that that's probably pandemic related.
1: Okay. Um, and you were there for about three months, if I recall.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was there from October to almost the very end of December, almost January 1st.
1: And then you went to, did you go up to the Northeast? I can't recall.
0: We went from there. We had a month off and my next assignment was in South Carolina.
1: Okay. And that was better?
0: That was significantly better. <laughs> um, that first assignment was kind of like, I just wanted to grin and bear it and get through it. I didn't want to be a quitter. Um, I had a great who I felt like was a really great recruiter. Um, he owned a small travel agency. So it wasn't like one of the big travel agencies that you hear about. And he was very understanding that if I needed to break contract, he would understand like, and I definitely had his support in that. So I didn't, but I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to quit. I wanted to say, okay, I need to get through this first one. I, mind you, I'm coming from California, right? So it's kind of the land of like, you know, the, the, The golden children of nursing because we've had ratio laws and we had lunch breaks. And I remember that first day in Virginia saying like, who breaks you for lunch? And they kind of laughed at me like, you don't get a lunch. And I'm like, oh, okay. I just won't eat for 12 hours. No problem. (laughs) We'll just, we'll just keep going. And so that first assignment really just threw me and I couldn't decide, is this just me not knowing because I'm, you know, I've never traveled before. I don't really know what it's like. I want to make sure that I make it through. I don't want to quit. So I didn't. And then I got to South Carolina and they, for this specific health system that I worked for, they overhired travelers. It was amazing. We started, the day that I started, there were like 50 travelers there. And then they hired another 50 the next week that I was there. And I thought, wow, they must like and, and the pay was significant for our travel assignment. And I thought, wow, you know, they overhired so much so that within a couple of weeks they dropped, I voluntarily dropped my contract to three days a week instead of two because they didn't need us. And they were calling within our contract. They could call you off one day every two weeks, I think. And I was being called off that day because they didn't need us. And I thought, well, at least I'm being paid the other days, you know, that's fine. And um, so staffing was not an issue at that hospital there were also some things surrounding covid that i felt like as a nurse um how do i put this that that aligned with me morally they weren't they didn't kick all visitors out of the hospitals they were not you know like i, I felt that they were handling covid a little differently than they had you know back in california and in my virginia hospital so I felt very good at that hospital. I felt like they were handling the pandemic fairly well. Um, We weren't reusing PPE or doing anything like that. We got what we needed when we needed it. And it felt like, oh, well, they were willing to like put the bill for all these nurses that they wanted to bring in. That's great. So yes, overall, that assignment went much smoother.
1: Let me ask you a question. The, The need for travel nurses, and by the way, you mentioned travel agency for the listeners you're talking about travel, uh, travel agencies for nurses, travel nurses, right? Not yes, somebody yes. to book a flight to Hawaii. Correct. Right. Um, so this need for travel nurses, it seems to have been, um, exploded during the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. when you mentioned like the South Carolina hospital, they didn't need as many. It sounds like they are better staffed. Was that because they were more prepared for it Or,
0: like you in... know, I think at first, so I started there in January. I stayed there until March. So now we're looking at like almost one year into the pandemic. Um, I don't think quite as many nurses had jumped ship to travel yet. Everybody was still kind of having their feelers out about the pandemic and how they felt about working through it and and that kind of thing. So I think at first, yes, they were, they were okay staffed, but they also were very quick to hire plenty of travelers. And I think at the time, in anticipation of the next wave, they were worried that they were going to get hit hard, so they wanted to be prepared for that and take on it. Because many of them were travelers that were staffed at the hospital. It wasn't like they had so many full-time staff, they would have definitely been short without the travelers. But I just think at that time, um, that specific health system, I think, paid their staff you know, relatively well for the area, the, the southern states. Virginia Hospital, those nurses didn't make any money for what they did. And they were hard workers. They were smart smart nurses and hard workers, and they got paid terribly for it. And I noticed as the further south we got, the more that their staff nurses made, which makes a difference in whether or not you want to stay at your job or jump ship to go travel and make a ton of money.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a probably a mathematical equation that maybe hospitals use because You're looking at staff nurses. And if I recall the figures I saw probably about six months ago, staff nurses pay increased six or 8%. Travel nurses pay increased, I think it was 50% during the pandemic. Mm
0: -hmm. Yep.
1: And I I guess I'm I'm still curious as to why, um, you know, why there's why so many hospitals are paying so much for travel nurses as opposed to just staffing up their staff nurses. That's a great question. <laughs> like, you know, yes, you and I—I've been sending you articles over the last week, knowing that that you're coming on here. Like uh-huh. the strike in New York that settled um, last week. You know, they're out for three days at seven thousand nurses at two hospitals in New York City, and they mm-hmm. did nineteen percent increases over a three-year contract, which I think is six point three percent, and they agreed to hire one hundred seventy more positions at one of the hospitals. But then I read that they've already got hundreds of positions available.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm like, why do you have so many positions available? And what did the strike really get you?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one of the first questions I actually ask every time I take a job is what does your turnover look like? Whether or not they answer me, honestly, is a different story. But I want to know what, what does your turnover look like? Why, why are people leaving here? Because that could warn me about whether or not I even want to come.
1: So you did travel in Virginia, South Carolina, and am I missing one somewhere? Did you? Yes. Do...
0: We Go went ahead. to Tennessee from there. So South Carolina was only an eight-week contract. Um, I really enjoyed it the whole time. I felt like the hospital was the hospital system seemed great. I felt like people were getting decent care there. If they, you know, I I felt that in that hospital system, if my family member were to get sick, I would be perfectly comfortable with them coming there which was a huge shift from where I was at in Virginia, where I was like, Oh, Nope. We'd be driving South to North Carolina. If we needed to go get care, we are not coming here. Um, and so yes, that one went well. And then we took just like a week and a half off in between traveled to Tennessee and I took my next assignment in Tennessee.
1: And how is that compared to Virginia or South Carolina?
0: Well, I didn't think that it could get um, worse than Virginia because I thought, oh, I, you know, I got that bad one out of the way. Now I'm a season traveler, I've taken a couple of assignments. I'm doing okay. And then we got to Tennessee, and that was awful.
1: What Well, first of all, why? And then second of all, what do you think the the cause of that is?
0: Um, so part of the why was that in our entrance interview, I was not met with honest answers. I was very clear at that point. Oh, now I know the questions to ask, you know, before I take an assignment. What are your ratios like? And do y'all get lunch breaks? Like, those are two things that are important to me, and I need to know how that works out. And I was met with, you know, our ratios are one to five. At the most, we might get to six, but we try really hard to keep it under that you know, what kind of unit am I working on? It's med surge, and I've never worked a strictly med surge unit, but my assignment in South Carolina was actually a float pool position, so I worked kind of all the units, and I felt fairly comfortable in it, and I thought, okay, well, I can take med-surg. You know, typically med surge are going to be less critically ill. I realize we're in a pandemic, so some of them have COVID, and they've got other issues, but so I went in it thinking, okay, you know, one to five, one to six at the most. They've got CNAs. They have a unit secretary. I'll I'll be okay. You've got kind of support staff because even support staff, even if they're not physically taking care of your patient, I would prefer an extra patient on my load, but a CNA who can help us all day long, then you hand me an extra nurse because a CNA is going to be able to like Hey, I'm stuck in a COVID room. Can you go grab me juice or something like that? Versus each man for himself, there is no helper on the floor. And so we got to this um, hospital. I got, they wanted to give me four hours of orientation on a charting system I had never used before. And I said, no. <laughs> like I, I asked in the interview, how long is orientation? We agreed to at least one full day. And so they gave me one full day of orientation and I turned around the next day and took a full patient load, not even knowing how to get into the chart stuff to the end of that first day because my, my preceptor had six patients and he was busy all day long. So it was very difficult for him to show me how to chart. And so I just remember thinking, oh my word, I don't think I'm going to make it through 12 weeks of this, but I'm going to try. And so most of it ratio, I would say that that was the highest issue with the hospital was the ratios
1: so let me let me ask a favor of you you're using terms a lot of listeners wouldn't know but what is med surge um what is float pool trying to think some of the other ones you just used i know what they are but i it's i think for the listeners not familiar with working inside hospitals be helpful to know.
0: yeah so float pool would be any nurses who are willing willing or tasked to float to different units on a hospital so you have and let's say it's like a baby hospital that's not got all these specialized units, you're going to have a med-surg unit, which is typical medical surgical. Um, anybody who comes in with an appendicitis is probably going to end up in a med-surg unit. Um, any types of surgeries typically are there. Usually you'll get some specialties like an ortho med surge where they all came in for orthopedic surgeries or like some type of bone issue, but... A regular medical surgical unit is just that. You're sick with the flu and you needed some oxygen while you're on the med surg unit because you don't need anything extra than that. You just need some some TLC, some care. Might be a little higher acuity for some of these patients, meaning that they're sicker than others. But overall, you're getting very typical type patients that, that have general illnesses and diseases, but they're breathing on their own. They need to be breathing on their own. They should not be on an, a ventilator. <laughs> they should not be intubated. Um, they should not have, you know, it's been my experience that they should not have more than a handful of IV meds. If they need to have more than that, their higher acuity, they should go to a different unit. So that's med surge. And then float pool would mean I can go to any of those types. So in the South Carolina hospital, they were very specialized. They had a completely neuro unit where everybody there was some type of stroke spinal cord. That was one unit. Then they had a completely cardiothoracic unit where everybody there was a heart or lung surgery. So they were very specialized. And so I was able to do float pool and go to any of those units. Basic med-surg, neuro, step down would be a little lower than ICU, but a little higher than med surge. just basing it based on acuity. Like how sick are they? What unit do they need to be on? And usually that would also tell you what the ratio should be on that floor. So the sicker they get, you should have a much lower ratio of nurse to patient.
1: Okay. So um, like literally you could be working the ER one day and then med search the next? Hypothetically.
0: Hypothetically, yes. If you are a a regular staff float pool nurse, then yes, you should be cross-trained to work any of those different departments. Me as a cardiac, so that was my background going into traveling was cardiac nurse. I did not work ER. So that that would take ER and ICU would be out of the equation, but I could basic ER. Okay, I take that back ER, ICU um, and let's say like labor and delivery. Those specialized units are out of my float pool capacity, but I could float to anything else. So any neuro, any med surge, any cardiac unit, those would be fair game. But those other specialized higher acuity would not
1: be. So were the Virginia and Tennessee hospitals similar in their issues, staffing issues?
0: Yes. Yes. I believe so. I think the difference for me was that in... Virginia I was hired specifically for that that weird little transitional unit that was run by the ER but not actually ER and so we were very like isolated to this one unit they very rarely floated us to like their regular med surge floor occasionally if they shut down transitional care we might end up there but Overall, I stayed on that one unit. So I think that that helped in that I couldn't take more than five patients. It wasn't an option because there was nowhere else for them. You know, they they could not add more patients to my list. Whereas with Tennessee, I was on a regular unit that had, I don't know, 42 beds. And basically, if they got down to just a couple nurses, well, then you're picking up more beds because... There's people in them and they need somebody to care for them. So that was the difference, I think. I didn't quite see as much of the staffing issue in Virginia. In Virginia, the... I'm sorry, I'm mumbling my words here. In Virginia, the problem was the ancillary staff. We had no unit secretary, no charge nurse to round on us, no CNA to help with us. In Tennessee, there were no nurses and there was no ancillary staff. (laughs) So we got... It was hit by both sides of that where it was like, okay, at least in in Virginia, I was stuck with five to one. I couldn't take more than five, and I had another nurse there on the floor to help me, even if we had no ancillary staff, where in Tennessee, it was like, nope, there's 40. There's no ancillary staff, and we're just going to keep giving you more patients
1: and still not give you ancillary staff. So you got to like (laughs) one to 20?
0: No, no, no. I never got, no, no. I would never take that many. Um, My worst day was one to seven Um, part of, so when you talk about ratios, part of that is the acuity, right? So when I did my, my interview to come, it was what kind of, what kind of patients do you see? What is your ratio? And it was med surge and the ratio is one to five, one to six. Well, then I get there and I had several on my first day of like straight COVID. They were on BiPAP, which means that they needed assistance breathing and that's not That, to me, automatically puts you at a higher acuity or not just basic med surge, but okay, we're in a different place. They do things differently, no problem. So I had a couple patients that were on BiPAP, and then on top of that, I ended up getting a patient from the cath lab that had just had um, a cardiovascular test done where you have to make sure that you are monitoring them every 15 minutes because they're coming back from this really invasive cardiac procedure and, and my immediate thought was, this is not med surge. This is not a medical surgical unit. This is tele at minimum. But that's not how it was presented to me. You told me this was a med surge unit. And so now not only are my, is my ratio 1 to 6 on a good day, 1 to 7 on my worst day, but these are also not the patients we discussed me having. They're much higher acuity than that. <laughs>
1: Let me ask you, when when you're talking to somebody as a travel nurse and asking, you know, what's the ratio, who are you talking to? Is that the agency or are you talking to somebody within the hospital?
0: Um, so in that specific job, it was the unit manager for that hospital. She was doing the interviews. Um, you know, they were so desperate they would have hired me. I don't think it would have mattered what I would have said. They just needed somebody there, Um we won't discuss names, but it's a particular health system that's not commonly liked among travelers. And so they do have difficulty getting staff and, and sure enough, I will never take another assignment within that house, that health system again. Um, and it is very commonly known throughout the travel nurse, like don't take, don't take assignments at these places. So I'm sure that they were having a hard time getting anyone anyway, but it was their nurse manager. Now it, oh, Sorry. <laughs> I can bleep.
1: I'm sorry, I'll bleep that out.
0: <laughs> bleep me out. Um, at my prior assignment, that was all done through my agency, my travel nurse agency. I didn't have to talk. I didn't have a um, interview with anybody. They arranged all of it.
1: Okay, so I'm I'm asking that because there seems to be a breakdown in communication, and I'm just wondering if it's is it the unit manager that's so desperate to get bodies in? Is it HR that's you know, doing the interviews of the travelers or is it the agency?
0: Oh, um, I would say probably the unit managers, the hospital, the hospital as a whole, whether that be their HR, their staffing, whoever it is that gives them the okay to hire more travelers. Um, now, the breakdown in communication between myself and that manager when I was coming on for that position Um, I think was just a, we don't want to portray this as being quite as bad as it is until you get here. And then maybe you'll, you know, same thing with Virginia, where she, she told me on the day one, like, you're here. I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to give you any schedule that you want, but just so you know, almost every traveler has quit so far. (laughs) And it was like, well, now I'm already here and I'm kind of committed for the next 12 weeks, but thanks for that information. So I think it's just trying to get you there and hope that you stay through your assignment.
1: So, let me, um, let me kind of backtrack a little bit. So you you spent a year or more doing travel, but you in these hospitals, why is it that they're sh- so short staffed to need travel? Because if, if you're getting it, I'm just making the numbers up. If you're getting 50 dollars an hour as a staff nurse or thirty dollars an hour, whatever the number is, but the hospital's paying you know 100 to 150 for travel nurses, why are they so short-staffed on the staffing side? For the staff side.
0: I think that that would so we're we talking pre-COVID or post COVID or just in general?
1: Uh, let's do both, pre and post, because staffing has always been an issue as far as I know in, in nursing. And I sure I'm seeing now it's a issue not just in nursing, but in you know, all other whether it's respiratory therapists or mm-hmm. or whomever. Just seeing a big shortage. So, pre, so I, pre-COVID, why were there staffing shortages?
0: So pre-COVID in, so mind you, we're talking me in California at that point, you know, good ratios, that kind of thing, good tuition reimbursement depending on your hospital. Um, I would say that the typical staffing issues um, in my area specifically were due to not having enough nursing schools that were producing quality nurses. Or enough nurses, really. The the nursing school that I went to was extremely strenuous, and you did not pass if you were not doing well. They didn't just pass you through just to give you an attaboy and tell you to go let the NCLEX weed you out, your your nursing exam at the end weed you out if you weren't good enough. Like, they failed you. So we didn't have in my area a ton of graduates every year anyway. So I think that that definitely comes into play um, as far as having you know, adequate staff pre-COVID um, in these hospitals. Also, you know, then so it's multifold, right? So you've got people are living longer. That means that we're having more elderly people who are sicker for longer. In some cases, we're we're keeping people alive. So hospitals are, you know, as we as the median age of life expectancy gets higher you need more nursing staff to take care of these people who are going to inevitably get sick and end up in the hospital and we're going to take care of them and try to patch them up and send them back home Um, so there's a little bit of all of that I think that there's also within the last uh, I don't know probably dozen years since I've started nursing there's been this a lot of push in some areas for more more home care and less hospital care and Medicare and and the guidelines have come in and said you know if you get re- readmissions within so many days, you're going to be penalized for these things. And so, yes, it's much better for the hospital to not have readmissions. But at the same time, what's the cost in that? And and then, of course, the bottom line, they don't really want to pay. Great. And, and it is always more beneficial for a nurse. Let's say I was still at my staff job. I could have left for a year and come back making five or six more dollars an hour. But if I stayed there for a year, I'd only make 50 cents more by the next year.
1: So that's, um, that's a wage inequity issue. And is it, is it because um, more seasoned nurses, you stay there, you're only getting 50 cents more an hour and they're, and they're paying more on the entry level. Would you have Mm -hmm. come back as a brand new nurse? If you left for a year? Yeah, so, okay, they're they're incenting through pay the new nurses and the seasoned nurses are getting compressed, their wages are compressed, or they're being passed over. Absolutely. and that's That was even I'm... in California?
0: Oh, for sure. I wouldn't, so I, I take that back. I wouldn't come back as a brand-new nurse. However, I would be more desirable to them as an experienced nurse. They would have reason to want to up my wage to bring me on board. Whereas this nurse who's been there for the last 12 years, who's barely making $6 more than when she started, well, she's already there and she's staying around. So they don't need to worry about paying her more because she's clearly not going anywhere. So I would have, they give you a credit, you should say, like even as my LP, because I started as an LPN. So when I went to the acute care hospital, they, for every LPN, year for every two years of my LPN experience they added that as let's say one year of RN experience so I started at my acute care hospital with four years of experience even though I had actually been a nurse for six or seven by that time so they do give you credit for your nursing but as far as keeping you versus wanting to bring you back well of course they're gonna give you the better incentive if they're trying to get new employees than keeping around the ones they've got
1: now this this was pre pandemic, right?
0: That's pre pandemic, yes. Yeah. So I would say that the nursing shortage had a lot to do with that. Not enough nurses coming out of the schools. Not trying to keep the ones, you know, that you've got that are good. Um, and nurses, you know, burnout. Of course, there's always been that. Even in California with nursing ratios laws, they just decide like I'd rather go try something different. Um, and they can because nursing is a great field in that way that they can go try all different kinds of things.
1: Now, how about either in or after the pandemic? Has is, is that changed? Has it gotten worse? I hear it's gotten worse. I'm reading it. It's gotten much worse. Um,
0: <laughs> New York but, is a good example of that. Um, 100% has gotten worse. You have So I think that COVID did a lot of really awful things. It was, it was, we could all agree that it was not good, right? It was not good for our world or our country specifically. Um, It kind of separated those, you know, it kind of showed what kind of leadership you had through COVID. Did you have great leadership that was really going to step up and jump on the floor and help you in every, in every aspect, not just healthcare. Um, Post-nursing, I can speak for myself and probably many, many others is that now we are at the point Where what you're laying on me is not worth what you're paying me on top of the fact that I'm now being required to compromise my morals and my ethics in order to do my job. And there's some who are going to say, that's okay, and they'll turn a blind eye to it, but I can tell you, I wouldn't want those taking care of me. And I, that's where I got to, because I stayed a nurse, I was on the floor up until August, so I've only just recently last five months not worked in a hospital. Um, And it got to the point where it's like the wages, the wages and staffing ratios are so poor that it's not worth what I'm doing for my career. I would prefer to work at Chick fil A and tell people, you know, give them a good meal that they're going to be really excited to get and not have to worry about killing them every day for for, you know, now where I'm at in the country is a bit less pay, but not significantly less than do what I do, even though I loved it for that amount of money.
1: So you mentioned something over the holidays when we got together that, um, and I think this was in Tennessee, there was a nurse that was being prosecuted for um, messing up meds or something. Mm -hmm. But, But as it relates to that, the staffing ratios directly tie into mistakes that can be made, right?
0: Oh, 100%. Um, mistakes are inevitable. If you ever meet a nurse who has said that they have not made a med error, they are lying to you. <laughs> They're, it's inevitable. We're human, right? So there's this margin of error in human nature and in medications, right? They, they account for that. They don't automatically give you the maximum okay. doses of things because they know that that they're giving you a dose for anybody across the board and not everybody is going to handle it the same way. And so there's this um, margin of error even in the perfect of circumstances. Best staffing ratios, great patients, all the things. Great hospital, tons of support. There's still a margin of error. Um, But then you have cases like what happened in Tennessee and that was a whole slew of things that attributed to that nurse making that meta error. But not only did she make a meta error, but she caught it. She immediately after all was said and done and the Sentinel event had occurred, she immediately realized what she had done and came forward with it. And I think that that type of event on top of COVID and the way that uh, that staff has been treated for the last few years, really struck home to many nurses like, they will throw me under the bus. they don't care. They don't care. And we're spending our lives away from our families making a living for a company that's profiting billions right now for these hospital systems that that'll throw you under the bus in two seconds.
1: Yeah, just to clarify for the listeners, you weren't at that hospital and, and you're just commenting on what was what you've read. What was in
0: the news. Yeah, just yeah. what I've read. I did, yeah. I was not, um, I didn't work with anybody that knew that nurse or even mm-hmm. near that hospital. So I was not part of that hospital system.
1: But I think you touched on something important, because if staffing ratios are messed up, somebody's having to work 12-hour shifts or whatever. And I don't know this particular nurse's case, but a mistake is made, and then that person is held criminally liable, which I think was the case in Tennessee, right?
0: Mm-hmm, yep.
1: And, and now back to your point, is why would I want to do that? Is that what you're talking about with morally and ethically?
0: Yes, yes. Um, Staffing ratio specifically with morally for myself, I realized that I was walking into this. um, So just to touch back, if we don't get there before that, um, I went back to the hospital. So we traveled, we moved back across the country. I went back to the hospital that I had worked at as a travel nurse.
1: In California or what state no, are we talking about?
0: In South Carolina. So coming okay. back from, went back to California for a little while, went back to my hospitals there, then we moved. We permanently relocated to South Carolina went back to that hospital system that I loved, right? That was a great contract. And then I realized like, wait a minute, there's no travelers in here. Very few now. They're trying to work just off staff. They're probably realizing what, how much their budget they spent on all those travelers they had while I was there the year prior. Um, And my ratios were getting worse and worse every time I came into work. They'd get worse. I'd have an extra patient here, an extra patient there. Acuities were getting higher. And at that point, I realized I'm going to work with my hands tied behind my back. And I can't give good care because I physically am unable to care for this many people at one time. And then the mistake, like something that happened with that nurse in Tennessee happened, which happened while I was here. I take that back. Her case went viral while I was here because it went to court at that time. It happened years ago, but something like that occurs. And you're just like, what am I doing? Like I could literally risk my life home with my children. Somebody could send me to prison for trying to come and do my job and do a good job. I want to take great care of these patients, but I physically am unable to do so. And I don't feel right about that.
1: So you're still connected to a lot of nurses. Are you hearing that a lot?
0: Oh, 100%, yes. Um, I still work in healthcare remotely. Um, I talk to nurses every day. Some of the nurses that I work for do still work on the floor like I did for so many months, even though I came remote. And same thing. Like, like it's been years now. I remember when I got to the Tennessee Hospital, at that point, COVID had been a whole year, and they were reusing um, plastic PPE, plastic PPE gowns. And I thought, well, wait a minute. We're at over a year from COVID now. Like there is no reason that we should not have plenty of gowns available, and they were available. They just weren't. They were so used to this idea that they needed to conserve just in case. And I was like, "What are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? This goes against everything we've ever learned about infection control to reuse this paper gown that, or plastic gown that you you're supposed to throw away every time you use." And so. Um, I'm sorry, where was I going with that? (laughs) That was,
1: well, (laughs) let me, let me just ask to clarify. So was that a corporate decision? Was it a unit manager's decision? Like if you had requested new PPE, would you have gotten it?
0: I did. Yeah, I requested it and I did get it. So I don't know where that was coming from or why that was in their practice, but I absolutely refused to do it. And, I, and and it was those types of things that I kind of saw across the country, like, clearly you don't care about your staff. You know, you saw those memes that went around where they were like, of course, at first it was like quarantine for this many days, but if you're a healthcare worker, only this many days. And then you'd see a little meme of somebody like, just push your ventilator along while you're working because they don't really care. Just get there. It doesn't matter. And it, and it really did feel that way, obviously not to that extreme, but like, you clearly don't care if I get sick because you're asking me to reuse PPE right now. Like, one of the most basic things that should be readily available, we don't even have. And so now we're at two years of that. We're talking post-COVID here. We're almost three years of that. And these nurses have been dealing with it. It's it. Now we're getting new nurses out who are just coming out of school. They don't know any different. So this is just what they're used to. You've got old nurses And I'm not even considered one of the old ones. You've got much older than myself who have decided this isn't worth it. I will retire early. I don't want to deal with it anymore. And you realize like the hospital doesn't give a dang. They don't. They really don't. (laughs) I wish it was different. I really do. I miss my job.
1: So let me, let me ask you, how can a hospital administrator change that around?
0: Um, the two most basic things that I think that any nurse would tell you is that it is not rocket science with safe staffing ratios and adequate pay, you will see much less turnover. And it's true. I mean, money talks. That's why you've got so many travel nurses right now who are willing to give it a go. Not only is there no commitment, because if they get there and they hate it, they're done three months later, but they also are getting paid really well to be there. And so it does, It it makes some of that junk a little bit worth it. But If you want to keep your staff, which I think is what most hospitals would strive to do is to amp up their full-time staff and that people in their community give jobs to them, safe ratios and adequate pay are so much more important than any of this other stuff. We don't want pizza parties. We don't care about free donuts. Nobody needs another lanyard or, you know, little clicky pen. Nobody needs that stuff. We want to be paid adequately. And we also want safeguards to know that, like, I, not even so much that you need to protect me from any mistake that I make because I own those, but more so that you cared enough to give me safe ratios so that the chances of mistakes were so much less.
1: What's got the greater weight to it, the safe staffing ratios or the money?
0: Safe ratios, for sure. People who love their jobs will stay even though they're not getting paid well. I'd say scheduling uh, would also come in third with that. If they have flexible schedules, that would be like the next biggest thing for people. Is to feel like they can request time off or be with their family and not feel, you know, these people, I talk to nurses all the time that are forced overtime. Like, sorry, no, you're not leaving. Like they hold them hostage almost. And it's like, excuse me, what? (laughs) Like, I thought that this agreement was a mutual decision, not you holding me hostage to my job. And so, safe ratios, adequate pay, and scheduling would be the next thing, right?
1: Let me ask you, why are you hearing forced overtime? Is that because somebody calls off and they need somebody to staff the unit?
0: Yeah, yeah, because people don't show up. But they keep their jobs because the hospitals are desperate to not fire anybody. So, I mean... They are going to fire you, but they're going to let you do that. And then they're going to hold other people over to make sure that they.
1: And to clarify for um, non-healthcare people out there, if you leave a patient because your shift is over and there's nobody to cover for you, what is that?
0: Abandonment.
1: And, and can, that results in?
0: It can result in losing your license if they want to pursue that.
1: Right. Yeah. So that's, it's pretty, it's a pretty big deal in healthcare. If you walk off the job.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep. You have to, you have to hand that patient off. So uh, all that to say, I mean, I, and I don't think that my story is anything special compared to what most have seen. I do. I definitely asked, I prayed like, Lord, if I'm not taking COVID seriously enough, open my eyes. If there's something else that I need to see, show me, like, I want to see this. And so while we were traveling, I thought, no, I'm going to see the worst of the worst. Like, you know, look at what's happening on the East coast. And I thought when I got here, I'm going to see the worst of the worst. And what I saw over and over again was we clearly are not prepared for things like this, but now we're three years later and we've still not changed. And so it was like for that year. Okay. Many people stuck it out. They were like, okay, you know, we'll just get through it. They're being all pumped up by the media and everybody around saying, you're going to, you're going to, you know, you're, you're our heroes. <laughs> and so everybody kind of stuck it out and they wanted to be the hero and they wanted to take good care of their patients and do the best they could. And, and now not only have they seen so much death and so much destruction, but they've, they've not been met with anything good when it comes to their working environment. And it's just, Oh, it's a travesty. It makes me very sad.
1: I had, you know, there's a, a line that I've heard several times repeated that we went from heroes to zeros. Oh Yeah. <laughs> And, it's you know, and you mentioned the pizza parties and, and you know, we don't need more pizza.
0: No, please don't give me more pizza. We've been fed. Well, we, we are all adequately fed. That's not the, well, I mean, but see, when you think about it, the pizza parties are like in Virginia, many times the ER would decide to buy the entire staff food so that they could eat, but they didn't get to take a lunch break. So they were like, sorry, you can't take your lunch. I'll feed you just keep working. And then you have all all these infection control things. And these nurses are straight eating their chicken sandwich at the computer that they're typing on after they've taken care of all the And I was like, whoa. (laughs) And that, you know, mind you, I'd come from California. But I did hear at that time, my friends who were still in those hospitals in California, and they were experiencing the same, like, terrible ratios for a little while there. And same things, they weren't getting their lunch breaks, and 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 they all grinned and bared it. They said, okay, we're just going to get through this. It'll get better. It'll get better. And I think in some ways, you know, California's gone back to hopefully utilizing their ratios. I'm not there anymore, but utilizing their ratio laws. Um, but overall, it's just, it's just not safe. So for anybody listening, like, it's not safe in the hospital. Don't go there alone. Make sure you take an advocate with you. Make sure that your loved one is there to advocate for you, because... They, and it's not because your nurses are bad. It's because their hands are tied and they might have seven other patients and you might be the wellest of the seven, which means you're going to get the least amount of attention that day.
1: How much of your day was um, occupied doing paperwork or reports?
0: Oh, <laughs> I'm probably a bad nurse to ask that question. I was more of a minimal charter. So it was like, you know, at the end of the day, okay, they're still alive. We had a great day. We're okay. Um, I would say... <laughs> Probably at least a third of your day, if you were doing it well, would be spent charting. They, they like to say there's this um, line in nursing that if you didn't chart it, it didn't happen, right? So they take you to take you to court and they say, oh, well, you didn't chart all of these things. So they never happens. Well, I like to rebuttal that way. Um, but I could have charted it and never done it. <laughs> so I can sit there all day long and say I gave great care and I turned you every two hours and I changed your dressings and did all those things and never walked into your room. How are you gonna prove it? You can't prove that. Right. So instead and and that was one of the things I noticed at one of the hospitals, they had trackers on them so they could tell every time you walked into a room. And it got to be like, oh, you care about that, but you don't care if I got a lunch break. <laughs> like you're gonna track me all day to make sure I went into each patient's room as many times as you thought I needed to, but you're not gonna pay me well enough to make that worth the invasion of my privacy, you know. So
1: I've talked to um, nurses or nurse managers who've been in the healthcare arena for decades, and they said it is much more, and I don't know if it's the insurance companies or, or the lawyers, but it is much harder to do nursing these days due to all the paperwork and all the regulations around it than it was, say, 25 years ago.
0: Oh, even I became a nurse as an LPN in 2010, and because of the the type of hospital I worked in, which was acute rehab, we were still paper charting. I still paper charted there for four years in 2010 hmm. because they were, you know, they were under different regulations because they were rehab. They weren't like the other hospitals, and they were working on it, which meant they were still okay by the government standpoint, you know, as long as you're working towards getting it. And so we just were one of the last hospitals in their system to receive their electronic charting. And so we didn't have it yet, but I I remember paper charting. It was much easier, much easier. And you become dependent on electronic charting to to catch mistakes that may not necessarily be available to catch. You know, like they're not always going to catch all of your things. And so there, yeah, I definitely would go back to that. My dream nurse job would be to do missions overseas where your doctor hands you a post it note and says, "Go give two milligrams of morphine," and your patient is just thrilled because they're not in as much pain <laughs> and you don't have to chart anything. <laughs> like I just got to give good care and, and help this person feel better for the day. And that's it. Don't have to worry about the rest of it.
1: So let me ask you this. I, um, if, if you follow the news worldwide, like the United Kingdom or Britain is currently experiencing a whole bunch of nursing strikes going on like nationwide, they're a national health well, it's uh National Health Service, NHS mm-hmm. over there. So they're socialized medicine predominantly. But they're still having the same issues that we're having here, or at least similar. They're going out mm-hmm. on strike over staffing levels and they're going out of uh going out over wages. So what do you think is gonna solve this? Oh. <laughs> it's a big question, uh, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a loaded question. Because each you know, I I don't necessarily agree with socialized medicine and so what might solve their problem might be a little different than what's going to solve our problem in that they you know their government can step in and say oh we aren't going to do these things but at the same time their government owns them and doesn't really care if they're not going to do those things they just can I think that what can solve it overall is just to be like really it comes down to say that <laughs> that is the biggest one like Get nurses who are qualified. Stop passing them through these ridiculous nursing programs where they never even had to touch a patient in their entire time of being there. And then you throw them into these, you know, hospitals where they've got acutely ill patients that, like, they have to touch, you know, and they're naked. And they've never even had to do any of those things through their nursing schools. So get qualified nursing schools. And, you know, sit back and realize that they want... They all of us went into this because we wanted to take good care of people. We really did. I mean, we could do any number of things and make thirty dollars an hour. We didn't have to do that. My husband made way more than me. He doesn't even have a high school education. we like, like didn't I didn't have to do this. I did this because I wanted to take care of people. That's that truly is what I felt like I was called to do. And now I feel like I cannot do that because my hands have been tied. And we didn't even touch, we didn't even get to touch on the vaccine mandate and the fact that that's kicked so many people out of the hospitals and and nursing too. Like, hello, New York. Why do you think that you're missing so many nurses? Well, there's a big portion of that and we didn't even get to touch on it.
1: (laughs) Well, we, we can touch on that briefly. Have you heard from nurses that are leaving or have left due to the vaccine
0: mandates? 100% yes, many. I know many, many. And that would have been me had I stayed in California. Thankfully, at the time that the mandate came through California, I was able to file exemptions pretty quickly because the mandate happened so fast that hospitals immediately got with their attorney. So the two, I actually did like an outpatient surgery at 1.2 per diem just because it was an easy gig, but it was run by a hospital in our town. And they pretty quickly were like, okay, attorneys, how do we get past this? Like, what do we need from them? Because we don't want to lose our staff. (laughs) Like we can't afford to lose them right the second, which bought them some time to deal with it. And so I was able to sign exemption forms there. But when we left California, the plan was for me to take another travel assignment back in South Carolina so that we can make a little extra money before I went remote. And they wouldn't take me because I didn't have... The vaccine, and so I was like, "Well, okay, I guess." And I still, I still get calls from different agencies, and I'm like, "I'm sorry, but traveling isn't friendly to nurses who have not been vaccinated, and so I can't come
1: back." Without getting into the politics of things, why, why wouldn't nurses get vaccinated?
0: Oh, many nurses have seen, and even myself, um, in my own my own healthcare journey and through my education have seen that a, they don't work the way that we've been told that they do. Um, so I was even one who refused the flu shot many, many years on end. I saw many, many patients who had, um, a specific reaction to the flu shot called Guillain-Barre, which they say is very rare, but I, I had, personally treated many patients who have had it. And I always thought, well, it's not, it's not even worth that. I'm young. I'm healthy. I should have no problem, you know, fighting the flu. But then also, you know, just my own personal little statistics here and there, not, not anything hard and concrete, but I would ask my patients who were there for the flu every year, did you get your flu shot this year? And every single one of them who was critically ill in the hospital would tell me, yes. (laughs) I'm like, well, okay, there's a reason not to get, you know, like they missed the strain nine times out of 10, like, and so just those little things, um, but then especially, and I know that for myself and many others, even if they felt like they wanted the shot, you know, because they did feel like it protected it, the very second you said, do this or else, they realized, okay, wait, no. And now there's not enough money in the world because I won't be bribed. And so that, it, it did, it came down to that. Like, if I say yes to this, what else am I saying yes to And did I just put a number attached to that? Did I just personally inject myself with something for money? Because where are we at morally when we decide that that's the case?
1: That's an interesting point.
0: So, and I've I've talked to nurses too, that maybe they got the first couple Um, in the remote job that I do. We talk to nurses all the time and they got the first couple, but they're done. They aren't getting any more. And so they're like, no, I'm sorry. You know, if I need to get a booster, that that's not an option and and good for them you know they should have the opportunity to make that personal health care decision for themselves um so see i guess overall we've kind of talked about like the you know how the moral and the ethics aren't there and that they don't really care about their employees that's kind of been a common theme well th- this kind of stuck it to us <laughs> like okay well now not only this not only Pun intended, not right? a super, yes yes exactly we're not going to pay you super well. We're going to give you terrible stopping ratios. We're going to feed you lots of pizza. And then on top of it, do this or else. And it's like, well, what's the or else? And many nurses just decided, okay, bye. Like, that's fine. There are other things that I can do that are much less stressed that aren't going to put me in an early grave because I'm over here trying to keep people alive all day long with no sleep and no pee breaks. And...
1: Or put you in prison.
0: Yeah. Yep. Or put me in prison. Exactly. I have a friend whose husband was a firefighter in the state of Washington and had to make the same hard decision. Like he's been a firefighter for years. He's probably only six years away from retirement with a full pension and they mandated it. And he was like, if I do this, then what am I telling my kids? If this, then what? What are you going to do next time? What else are you going to? So it's not just this. It's the fact that it's a slippery slope and that clearly you making a point about mandating that means more to you than keeping your hospital staffed safely because you knew for a fact that people were going to say, sorry, no, I'm not going to do that. Right. There's there, there's a children's hospital in Southern California that specifically had a post go viral of their nurses leaving their shoes outside, all the nurses that walked away. And they said, we, we hate this. We love our pediatric patients. We love those babies and we've been taking care of them for 20 plus years. And this is what it's come down to. That, you know, you would... You would prefer to see these seasoned nurses who can train up your new nurses who are taking great care of your patients walk away than give options for exemptions or, you know, even hear someone else's side of the story. So that coupled with the fact that they've now worked through one or two years of straight pandemic with terrible pay and awful ratios is like, okay, we've had enough. We'll wash our hands of this and we'll decide that we're going to do something else.
1: Interesting, so Melissa, we've been on for more than an hour let me let me see if I can wrap this with the three top issues staffing mm-hmm. compensation, flexibility, mm-hmm. right, yeah, and fourth would be kind of uh communication, and that don't mis- mislead me into going into an understaffed yeah. unit, right, yeah.
0: There's that. Yeah. Be honest. Be honest about what you're expecting of your staff. I think that that's a pretty, that's a given, but then you could wrap that up with also allow for bodily autonomy, (laughs) all of that kind of coupled with like, right. You still get to be a person outside of this hospital.
1: Well, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on labor relations radio.
0: Yes. Thank you for having me. I appreciate
1: it. That's enlightening. Yeah. We'll have to, we'll have to carry (laughs) these conversations on. I look forward
0: to your email. Off air. Okay. Absolutely. Have a good day. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio.
1: So in talking to Melissa, you could hear some of the issues that are broader global issues. Um, And I, I suspect, although she was speaking for herself, she's also speaking for other nurses. There are three main issues that she mentioned that nurses are mostly attracted to. One is safe staffing. Number two is money and number three flexibility, but the staffing issue seems to be far and above the other two issues. It is the main issue. So why is it that we can't get enough nurses out there? Well, she mentioned there's not enough nurses coming out of the schools and I suspect this problem is going to get worse as the demographics shift and we become a more aged population and not enough kids having more kids. So, How do you alter that or change that? Well, here's just a thought, and this is how unions could play a role if they so choose. If, for example, unions like nursing unions, whether it's NISNA or CNA or other unions, were to actually get involved in the educational process, start the schools, grow your own, so to speak, that would be a much more attractive way for there to be a labor management partnership, if you will, and it doesn't have to be adversarial we know from the strike that took place in in New York City that they already had hundreds of positions that were unfilled. So getting hospitals to commit to more positions yet can't fill them, it doesn't seem to be the solution, so to speak. And on top of that, um, and I kind of found it humorous when she said, we've had enough pizza. Obviously, we're not doing enough to incent people to go into the nursing professions. We're burning them out. And on top of that, when mistakes are made, you're now seeing prosecution of nurses. So it seems to me that we're going to be losing more nurses rather than growing the nursing ranks across the U.S. In any case, I wanted to have this conversation or start a conversation, and Melissa was the perfect one to start it with. In that I think when I talk to people who are either rank and file or even hospital administrators, executives, everybody shares a common frustration, but there's not a lot of solutions being offered out there. And I thought from a hospital administrator standpoint, you could hear some of the frustration that's going on within the nursing ranks, um, although you probably already know this, but maybe there's a different way to look at things. Well, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at one 888 668 6466 Or uh, you can leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode, as I hope you do. Have a great day. Thanks for listening.
0: You have been listening to Labor Relations
1: Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners. This is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues. And make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.